Well, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you here this morning. My name is Tim Park. I serve as our lead pastor. If this is your first visit to our church, a special welcome to you this morning. We trust that you will experience the, the warmth of Jesus in this place. Now, many of you receive my weekly email blast. If you don't receive an email from me on a weekly basis, then we want to make sure that you have that opportunity. And so if you're not on our email list, just reach out to our church staff at office at efreedb.org, and we'll add you to the list, because it's nice for me to be able to share the weekly goings-on here at our church with you. And if you received my email blast this week, you know that our family is traveling for the next two weeks. And so we're going to be leaving Tuesday morning, early Tuesday morning, for Italy. And we'll be in Italy and Germany for two weeks. And so we'll miss you. We won't be here for the next two Sundays on the 17th and the 24th. But we'll return that week, and I'll be here uh, for the rest of September. But uh, we'll miss you. So we won't be here for two full weeks. It's the first time I'm gone for like two weeks. But can I share this? That uh, we go with peace of mind, knowing that our church is in such great hands. And God has blessed our church with wonderful, faithful leaders and servants who have the heart of Jesus. And so I can go and not even be worried about church because our staff and leaders and elders are all just so ready. They're like, Tim, just go, go, go. And so uh, we'll, we'll miss you for two weeks. But uh, I'll eat a lot of pasta for you. How's that? Okay? Pasta and pizza. And uh, Joanne and I, we're going along with our son, Andrew. And so the three of us are flying on Tuesday. Our daughter, Amanda, is currently in Italy. She's studying abroad in Italy for this uh, next semester in her architecture program there. So we'll meet up with her, hang out with her for a little bit, and then make her way to uh, Germany. So that's coming up. So thank you for allowing me to share that personal news with you. Uh, today we're going to continue our series. Before we open God's Word, I would love for us, if we can, to bow and to pray. And as we pray together, we also pray with a heavy heart because those who uh, have been impacted and affected by the earthquake in Marrakesh, Morocco, we know that uh, at least last count over 2,000 have died. And we know that many, many others have been impacted. And so, Father, we come to you knowing that you are sovereign over the earth. We also come to you knowing that we live in a broken world. Lord, we know that one day all things will be made right. But until then, even our earth and, and the natural happenings are impacted by this broken world. And so, Father, we, we come to you right now and we, we cry out to you, Lord, because of the devastation in Morocco. Father, would you bring immediate comfort and relief and healing to those who have been impacted in a devastating way. Father, we pray, God, that survivors will continue to be found. We pray for family members who have lost loved ones. Father, would you 
surround them with a presence that would be so clear and so evident that you, sovereign God, the Almighty God, you are still in control. Bring comfort and healing. Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, as we continue this uh, series in awe, exploring the names and titles that have been attributed to you through your word, help us, Lord, to open our hearts to your word, transform us so that we would look more and more like Jesus every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is The Lord is Peace. The Lord is Peace. And that's not a phrase that we often use, the Lord is Peace, but it'll make sense as we unpack today's passage. And at the beginning of our series, we said that we're going to explore various titles and names of God given to us in His Word. And we're using the Psalms as a jumping-off point. But we're not going to stay right in the Psalms. We're going to explore various passages. And so today, we're going to spend our time in the book of Judges. But before we get to the book of Judges, we do want to start at our jumping-off point, And that's Psalm 29. And so I encourage you in your Bibles to turn to Psalm 29. And I'm going to look at verse 11. And we'll explore this particular title that we see in Psalm 29, and then we'll see again appear in the book of Judges. So Psalm 29, verse 11 says this, The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. So we're going to focus our attention on that last word, peace. In the English language, the word peace has been featured in many phrases and sayings, right? Go in peace. Maybe, maybe you've heard that. Go in peace. Or make peace with your past. We're often encouraged to make peace with our past. How about this one? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Although I've never actually said that in any wedding that I've officiated. And I don't think I've ever heard that. But speak now or forever hold your peace. There is an interesting uh, origin to that phrase. If you want to know all about it, just come and see me afterward or just Google it. It's a, quite a fascinating phrase. And how about this one? I just need some peace and quiet. That's usually what parents of young kids say, right? I just need some peace and quiet. And the list goes on and on and on. Peace is usually something that we're either trying to maintain or attain, right? We want peace or we want to continue to experience peace. Now, I know that peace can be defined in so many different ways in our culture, but we want to understand what the Word of God says about this idea of peace. In the Old Testament, the word peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness. Shalom is a very profound word. 
Now, when I was in seminary many years ago, in my Hebrew class, every class we'd enter, and at the beginning of every class, our professor, he would say, Shalom. He'd greet us with shalom. And then when we left, again, shalom. It was like hi and bye. And yet, it's a very profound, deep word. Shalom, for our purposes today, is not simply the absence of conflict. Right? Because today we think peace is the opposite of conflict. Peace is the opposite of noise. But Shalom goes much deeper than that. Shalom is the presence of God, even in the midst of conflict. So don't think of shalom as an absence of conflict. Shalom is the presence of God, even in the midst of conflict. You know, we often think, wow, if we can just rid our lives of problems, we'll experience peace. We're prone to thinking things like, you know, if I can just make this much money, I'll be at peace so that I won't have to worry at night about my bills. If I could just get this much money, this much raise, then I'll feel at peace. But think about this. How many movies and documentaries have we seen over the years where more money only leads to more grief and more headache and more stress, and less sleep. So shalom is not the absence of struggle or conflict. Shalom is God's presence in the midst of conflict and turmoil. I'd like to see a show of hands. So you can play along, okay? So who here, up to this point in your life, who here has lived a conflict-free life? Can I see your hand? <laughs> Silly. Of course not. Of course not. If that's you, you, then you've just never come out of your room. <laughs> Every single one of us has lived in some kind of conflict. And we just think, you know what? If I just rid my life of conflict, then I'll be at peace. And especially those of us who are wired to just, you know, not like conflict, right? We like to avoid conflict. We just think, hey, if I can just avoid conflict, everything will be all right. But that's not God's ultimate desire for his children. But here's the thing about conflict. The reason why we experience conflict in life is because when sin entered the world in the garden, relationships were affected. Man and woman's relationship with God was affected, and man and woman's relationship with each other was affected. When sin entered the garden, the world became a bit broken. In week one of our series, we talked about this cycle of sin, right? The cycle of sin that plagued the people of God. And the cycle went something like this. The people of God, they would sin. And oftentimes that sin was connected with idol worship. That sin resulted in judgment. Judgment came. They faced the consequences of that sin. And then in the midst of that judgment, they became desperate. And so God's people cried out to God. 
and then God would bring deliverance. And this cycle occurred over and over and over again. In the book of Judges in the Old Testament, it talks about this cycle. And chapter 6 is going to serve as our backdrop for this message. And so in your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the book of Judges chapter 6. We'll be in verses 1 through 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then Judges, the seventh book in the Old Testament. Turn to Judges chapter 6. We're going to camp out here for the majority of our time. And so I'm going to start in verses 1 through 6. And as I read these verses, I want you to keep in mind the cycle of sin and see if you can point out three segments of that cycle that's featured here in the first six verses. Verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's the first stage. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Judgment comes, right? Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel. Neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So right there, in the first six verses, we have three of those stages of the sin cycle. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As a result, judgment came in the form of the Midianites. And then in desperation, finally, they cried out to God for help. Here's what happened. God's people turned their backs on God. They were experiencing prosperity. They were living in good times. Everything was going well. Success, wealth, leisure. It was going so well that they pushed God away. They didn't need him. They were doing good on their own. At least that's what they thought. And that's what happens oftentimes in our own lives, right? When things are going smoothly, we tend to think, Hey, God, I got this. Why don't you take a break? I don't need you in my life right now. Life's good. I'll take care of it. It's smooth. Just, just sit this one out. Now, we don't actually say those things, right? We don't actually say, hey, God, I don't need you right now. But by our actions, that's what we're saying. But by us taking credit for successes, that's what we're saying, right? Life's good. I'm doing well in my job. Family's going well. I got this. I'm responsible. I'm dependable. I'm on cruise control. God, just take a break. But then here's what happens. When crisis hits, 
and it will hit. And crisis often hits when we least expect it. Then we cry out to God in desperation. And that's what God's people did. You see, they had drifted far from him. And so judgment came upon them. The Midianites, they were extremely powerful. They oppressed God's people to no end. The very word Midian, Midianite, means strife. So they just tormented the Israelites. They showed no mercy. Things got so bad that the people of God, they left their homes and they lived in holes. They were so afraid that they dug holes and they lived in holes, fearing for their lives. They had no peace. They were constantly looking over their shoulders. Every year during the harvest, the Midianites, they would come and ravage the land, take all the crops. As a result, God's people, they just lived in constant fear. Now, maybe you've experienced this in your own life. When you're afraid of something, whatever that might be, the last thing you want is to be alone, right? That's how it is for me. If I fear something, if I'm afraid of something, the last thing I want to do is to be alone. Again, that's why in hospital beds, those who are in hospitals awaiting surgery, sick, it's lonely to be there by themselves. When we are in desperation, the last thing we want is to be alone. So they cried out to God. You know, that's why little kids at night, when they have a nightmare, they just crawl into their parents' bed. And they just find security in their parents' bedroom. When we're in distress, we naturally call out for help. And that's important. You see, because God doesn't want us to suffer alone. He also wants us to know, church, that he's there 24-7, not only when we are suffering. He wants us to know that, hey, I'm there when life is good, too. So I imagine God is in heaven saying, kids, it's okay to call me when all is good. I can't think of a single parent who doesn't like it when a child calls just to say hi. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. I just called to say hi. What do you want? What do you need? No, nothing. <laughs> you need more money? No. I just called to say hi. God was waiting by his heavenly phone, waiting for his children to call out. For seven years, Israel suffered at the hands of the Midianites. Seven long years. They would not even pick up the phone to say hi to God. But finally, 
in desperation, they did. And here's what happened in verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the land or the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you had not listened to me. So when God's people finally reach out to God in desperation, God sends them a prophet. It's an unnamed prophet here. But this prophet is sent to remind Israel of their heritage, their history. And God sends his prophet to deliver the message that God deserves total surrender and full devotion. God deserves total surrender and full devotion. Yes, God wants us to call out to him for help. He also wants us to receive the truth of his word, even if that truth hurts. Now, church, what good is it if we cry out to God, pleading for help, if we have no intention of obeying his word? What good is it? What good is it if we as a church call out to God and say, God, bless our church, grow our church, increase the size of our church, help us to thrive as a church, if we have no intention of obeying the truth of his word, if we have no intention of committing ourselves to the standards of his word, God deserves total surrender and full devotion. And guess what? Sometimes that means doing things that are not popular. That means sometimes doing things that won't please people. But if we, individually in our lives and collectively as a church, if we commit ourselves to total surrender and full devotion, guess what? We never have to worry about the outcome. We won't have to worry about pleasing others. And we'll be so consumed with pleasing God. You know, even in a church setting, it happens to pastors, to staff members, to leaders, and to congregation members. We want to be liked. We want to be pleasing. And so oftentimes, our attention might shift from pleasing God to just pleasing people. Total surrender, full devotion, means that we please an audience of one, our Heavenly Father. God deserves total surrender and full devotion. And so God wanted to remind his people of this truth. So he sends this prophet. But he doesn't stop there. He then sends an angel 
And this angel is sent to talk to just one person. Just one person. And we'll see who that person is. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Let's stop there. This is a fascinating account that begins here in chapter 6, starting in verse 11. And some historical background will help us fully understand what's going on. Gideon is a judge. He's a judge in the line of judges that God appoints. And God appoints these judges to restore the relationship between God's people and God himself. And so we're told that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Anybody have any experience threshing wheat? Anybody? Maybe. I don't know. Okay, good. None of us. <laughs> so we hear the term, what does it mean to thresh wheat? Well, take a, take a look at this picture up here. Here's a picture of someone today threshing wheat by hand. It's a labor-intensive, time-consuming, tedious task. They just pound, beat the straw. And what they're doing is they're separating the edible grain from the useless chaff or straw. Now, here's the thing about threshing. Where you thresh is critical to your success. So usually you thresh in some wide open space, maybe some large covered open space where air can flow so that the air can take away all the bad stuff, leaving behind the good stuff. So you thresh in an open, airy space. No one in their right mind would go somewhere low into an enclosed small room and thresh. That's ridiculous. You would not confine yourself to a small room and go pound this straw because there's nowhere for it to go. But we're told that Gideon is threshing in the wine press. Back then, the wine press was dug deep down below. It was in a dark, isolated, confined place. So why would Gideon, in his right mind, want to thresh in an enclosed wine press? He was afraid. He was afraid of the enemy. He was afraid that the Midianites would come and steal the grain and maybe even harm him. He was afraid. So he went way below to thresh. In some ways, Gideon threshing in the wine press was symbolic of his life up to that point in the lives of his fellow Israelites. His life was dark, depressing, isolated, lonely. He was in hiding. He was afraid. But just then, 
as he is down below in the wine press, threshing uselessly, an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So here's Gideon hiding, afraid of his enemies, and the angel of the Lord says, Mighty warrior. That's an impressive title. But as impressive as mighty warrior is, the most impressive part of that phrase is, The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you in Hebrew comes from the same root as the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And we often hear the word Emmanuel during Christmas time, right? Because it's the name given to describe the Christ in Isaiah. So the Lord appeared to Gideon, said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. That's the best pep talk anybody could ever receive. It's the best halftime speech any coach could ever give. Now, for all the men who love football, right? Now it's like the best time of the year, right? Football starts, okay? And so this is like the best halftime speech. The Lord is with you. Go out and win, mighty warrior. Hey, champ. Go out and be victorious. There's no way you can lose. So... Gideon is ready to charge out of the locker room or the wine press and defeat the enemy, right? Wrong. Look at verse 13. Uh, Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, "Uh, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So in the previous verses, God gives Gideon the the pep talk he needs. So you think Gideon is ready to go out and charge into battle. Instead, he says, "Uh, God, you abandoned us. Now, Gideon got the abandoning part right. He just reversed the order. God didn't abandon them. God's people abandoned him. And they were now facing the consequences of their sin. So once again... God commands Gideon to go, and this time he says, am I not sending you? So in essence, God is saying to Gideon, Gideon, I'm with you. How could you lose? So now Gideon is ready to exit the locker room, right? Wrong again. Verse 15, Uh, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied again, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. It's as if God was saying to Gideon, Gideon, are you done with all your excuses? Good. 
You see, because everything you said is true. Your clan is weak. It's weak sauce. It's like the weakest. And yes, you are the youngest, the least in your family. I'm glad you recognize that, Gideon. You're so self-aware, Gideon. Now, I can reveal my power through you. You see, all along, Gideon is thinking, how can I do this? When God is saying, I'm going to do this through you. It's not dependent on your strength, Gideon. Here's God's message to Gideon. And here's God's message to us, church. It's not dependent on your strength. All I require is your trust and obedience. That's it. So, Gideon is finally ready to go. Right? Wrong yet again. This is amazing. Look at verse 17. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Now, I know that this passage is not a lesson on parenting, okay? I know that. But I can't help but appreciate how patient God is with his children. Parents, 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 parents. If your patience has ever tried with your kids, just open up to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Can you just picture God thinking to himself, Gideon, 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 just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. And each time Gideon is unsure, it's like when your child is standing at the edge of the pool. And you say, jump, I'll catch you. But the apprehension and fear keeps the child frozen at the edge of the pool. And you stand patiently, saying, jump, I'll catch you. I'll catch you. And then finally, when your child jumps into your arms, relief, joy. And then that child never wants to stop. <laughs> Keep jumping and jumping and jumping and jumping. Look at verse 19. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, 
he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Verse 21. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas! Sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And verse 23 says, But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiah's rites. This is the first of many signs Gideon would ask for to make sure it truly was God he was talking to. By the way, we don't have time to cover all the signs that Gideon asked for, but he asked for a lot of signs. And when Gideon finally realized that he was in the presence of God, he became nervous. He became afraid. In fact, I think he was thinking back to Exodus, like the book of Exodus, when uh, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And that's why God said to Gideon, peace, you're not going to die, Gideon. You're not going to die. And at that moment, Gideon was so humbled that all he could do was build an altar and worship God. And he called it, the Lord is peace. Church, this is the only occurrence in the entire Old Testament where we see the combination of these two names, Yahweh, Shalom. The great I am is peace. Yahweh, Shalom. Now, if we had another hour or so I would love to survey the New Testament and look at all the occurrences of the Greek word peace. But we don't have an hour. So I'll simply say this, church. The Greek word for peace in the New Testament can best be described by the phrase binding what is broken. Isn't that good? Peace is binding what is broken. When something is broken, we want to fix it, right? That's why countries have peace talks. That's why people who have disputes with each other, they go to the justice of the peace to seek a peaceful resolution. But here's the thing about trying to achieve peace without God in the picture. It is a never-ending task to try to achieve peace without God in the picture. Because, as we said at the beginning, we live in a broken world. We fix something, but then something else breaks. We fix that, but then something else breaks. 
It's a never-ending task because we live in a broken world. And until Jesus makes it right, we will still live in a broken world. And so it is futile to try to achieve peace without God in the picture. The only lasting solution to a broken world is to begin by experiencing the only lasting peace, and that is peace with God. It's the only lasting solution. We must begin with peace with God. And the only way that we can experience peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about that, I encourage you this week, go home and study Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. And you'll read that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing about peace. Peace doesn't end there. That's the starting point. When we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that is not the end. That's the starting point. Once we've experienced that lasting peace, church, we've gained a new calling. Did you know that? Once we've experienced that peace, our new calling is now that we are called to be peacemakers. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5. So this week, go and study Romans 5 and Matthew 5. Once we've experienced peace with God through Jesus Christ, we have a new calling, and that is to be peacemakers. For we will be called children of God. Children often resemble their parents, right? I can look at all the kids right here. I can look at their faces and go, oh, I see a little bit of dad. I see a little bit of mom. Our kids resemble us. You know, Jesus had a clear purpose when he said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He had a purpose in mind. And that's because are you familiar with the uh, phrase, oh, you're your father's son, or you're your mother's daughter? Or how, are you familiar with this phrase? You know, maybe you grow, you're growing older and you go, oh, I've become my dad. Or, oh, yeah, I, I've become my mom. It's usually like a negative thing, right? It's like, oh, I've become my dad. I've become my mom. It's like an embarrassment or something, right? But the older we get, we come to the realization, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm like my parents now. I thought I'd never be that. Now, when we say that, I'm my father's son or I'm my mother's daughter, we're not usually referring to our physical features. We're talking about something inside, the qualities that we've developed. In Jesus' day, Sons often followed their father's footsteps and became the same thing their father became. So Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, was a carpenter. So Jesus learned the trade of carpentry by his 
Father. The highest honor you or I could receive is to be called sons and daughters of God. That is the absolute highest honor you and I could ever receive in this life. You are a daughter of God. You are a son of God. You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. There's no greater title that we could ever receive in life. And that's because what they're saying is you resemble your heavenly Father who reconciled us to himself by the blood of his Son. And because of that, we now have a calling to promote shalom. So church, each day this week, when you get out of bed, here's the question I would love for you to ask yourself. Every day this week, how can I promote shalom today? That's our question for the week. How can I promote shalom today? Remember, we cannot control our circumstances, right? You know that by now, right? We cannot control our circumstances. We get out of bed, we walk out of our house, and something's going to happen to us that we won't expect. We cannot control our circumstances, but we can control how we respond to those circumstances. So the question again is, how can I promote shalom today? Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you for reconciling us to yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for calling us your sons and daughters. And Father, as your sons and daughters, we now have the distinct opportunity and the privilege to be peacemakers. And so this week, as we wake up every morning, as we ask ourselves, how can I promote shalom today? Help us to know that we don't do it by our own strength. Like Gideon, <laughs> help us to be self-aware, to come to the realization that it's not about us, but it's your strength working through us. So, Father, give us the strength to be promoters of peace in all our conversations, interactions, meetings, gatherings, every encounter that we come through across this week, help us to promote shalom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.